Welcome to Storytime with Michael Kingswood. I'm Michael Kingswood and I write science fiction and fantasy. I used to be in the Navy, spent 20 years doing submarine operations, among other cool things. Learned to fly planes, learned to scuba dive, had a bunch of kids, saw the world, and I started writing fiction. In this podcast, I'm going to be sharing my stories with you in the hope that you'll have fun, and also that you'll like my stuff and come back for more and maybe help brother out with buying a book or two. So uh, sit back, relax, I'm going to tell you a story. Hi friends, I'm Michael Kingswood and it's story time. I was getting started on this week's episode a little bit later than normal. It's now Saturday. <laughs> uh, that's okay. Um, did a lot of traveling this week. I uh, went over to Virginia for business and kind of just was hectic in a lot of ways. So, just now getting started. Um, before we go any further, I wanted to let you guys know that uh, this week it's another week of the Infinite Bard. As you know, a bunch of friends of mine who I share writing groups with do this Infinite Bard promotion to share each other's work and expand our audiences a little bit. This week, uh, Phil Junta is presenting his short story called All That Matters Is What You Believe. Um, it's sort of a religious fiction, uh, cool story from a great writer. Uh, I suggest you go check it out. Uh, you go by theinfinitebard.com and you can drink, link to his story and you know, all the other stories that have gone by in the last several weeks. Uh, I'll also put a direct link to his story in the show notes here. But go check him out, show him a little love, and uh, yeah, then come back. Two weeks from now, August 7th, will be the next one, and that'll be one of my stories. Hey, even better. Well, maybe not. I mean, Phil's pretty awesome. But, uh, yeah, go check that out. Uh, as far as goings-on in the Kingswood abode, uh, writing-wise, been kind of a slow week. Like I said, I've been traveling, doing a whole lot of stuff, and a little off my game as far as the writing goes. Uh, I do have to uh, continue on with my Great Challenge, though. I succeeded last week with uh, week 14 of the Great Challenge. So 14 weeks down, 14 stories written. And I'm going to succeed this week. I haven't started this week's story yet just because of everything I've been doing and kind of been distracted. Uh, but I'll get that done between today and tomorrow and the another week of success and uh, go from there. But still, it's been... Eh, kind of an off week regardless that's not why you're here you're here to read you're here to listen to another couple chapters from the pericles conspiracy and uh we'll get right back to that shall we last time we left uh joe and raul and malcolm had made it out of the sewers and got to a little motel and malcolm went off on a little shopping spree well to make contact with his people but also came back and hey i got stuff for you joe since you didn't come with any bags so joe got a fresh change of clothes yay which you know feels feels good for you know <laughs> all the grime and crap that she's been through lately and uh the underground movement or whatever they call themselves is sending a person to come pick them up let's see what happens next the pericles conspiracy written by me read by me and admit it you've missed having me apologize for doing so but i'm not gonna just read and listen and enjoy. Chapter 26. Transit. Joe felt like a new person when she walked out of the bathroom. 
The new jeans were slightly tight, but that was not so unusual with denim. The t-shirt was loose and comfortable. She took a moment to brush out a few tangles in her hair, which, as always, reminded her why she kept it short, while she studied herself in the mirror over the sink. Could be a lot worse. The design of the t-shirt, a dog with his tongue lolling out in a grin, was not what she would have picked, but beggars can't be choosers. What does your contact have to say, she asked, looking at Malcolm's reflection in the mirror. She immediately wished she had not said anything. He gave a little jerk and blinked. Her question must have awoken him. Not much. He paused then, suppressing yawn with the back of his hand, stood up and moved his arms back and forth vigorously, getting his blood flowing. We lost several good people in the raid and almost all of our equipment and data. We're still trying to pick up the pieces, but it's hard to stay in contact with anyone. Raoul peered at Malcolm intently, curiosity on his face, but he remained silent. Smart guy. You could learn a lot just by shutting up and listening. Sometimes more than those around you think you have. Joe put the brush down and turned to face the two men, frowning. Surely there was more to it than what I saw the other night. I thought you said they had people all over the world. Malcolm gave a half shrug and spread his hands in a gesture of helplessness. It's complicated. When we lost Becky and Lars, we... A knock at the door cut off his words. Malcolm's face, bone weary a moment ago, hardened as he turned to look out the peephole. No security cameras in this place. After a moment, he relaxed, the sudden tension leaving his shoulders as quickly as it came. It's our guy. He reached for the doorknob, then paused and looked back at Joe and Raoul. Isaac can be a bit oversensitive sometimes. A little touchy. Just be careful what you say to him. Joe crooked an eyebrow at him. You'll see why, Malcolm said. Then he opened the door. Joe immediately understood what he meant. Isaac would have been tall, but he stood with a stoop that left him only slightly taller than Joe. From his wrinkles deep enough to be almost cracks in his face, he was getting on in years. Probably pushing 110, maybe 120. He had hair only on the left side of his head. It was thin, stringy, and gray. The right side of his head was a mass of burn scars stretching from his neck, halfway down his jaw, and then up to his temple. Where his ear should have been was just a hole. Joe could understand why he would be touchy. It must be horrible going through life so disfigured, and he would scarcely want it pointed out. Why did he not have reconstructive surgery? It was easily obtained and inexpensive. But then, inexpensive for some was a king's fortune for others. Perhaps he lacked the money. After all, he wore simple, almost nondescript clothing. Or at least at first glance it was simple. But when Joe looked closer, it became clear his cloth was high quality. The kind of quality that is satisfied to abstain from flashiness in favor of simplicity and functionality. A subtle, musky odor surrounded him, faint enough that Joe almost did not notice it but effective enough that it perked her interest almost before she realized it was happening. She was forced to reassess her initial impression. Isaac was a man of some means, but he preferred not to show it. Intriguing. Who was he, really? Hmm. <laughs> Isaac spared Malcolm barely a glance, instead giving first Raoul and then Joe a thorough look over. That's her, huh? Thought she'd be prettier the way you go on about her. Malcolm flinched slightly, then flashed Joe an apologetic half-grin. Isaac pursed his lips for a moment, then nodded slightly to himself and looked past Joe toward Raoul. Isaac sized him up, then held out a small satchel to Malcolm. Patch him up and meet me downstairs. I'm double-parked. Then he turned and walked away, toward the stairwell leading down to the motel's parking lot. Abrupt, isn't he? Raoul said. From his tone, he was not sure whether to be amused or angry. Joe could relate. Malcolm wasted no time, but hurried over to the bed and upended the satchel. As first aid kits go, it was bare bones. A few bandages, some gauze, and a few small spools of medical tape. But he did have a pair of stainless steel plates to use as a splint, 
and within a few short minutes they had Raoul's arm done up far better than it had been before. Malcolm stepped back from Raoul and took a second to admire their handiwork, then cleared his throat and turned toward the door. We'd better get moving, he said over his shoulder. He might just leave without us. It took a minute to gather their meager belongings and make their way to the parking lot. Isaac already had his vehicle started. He sat in the driver's seat when the window rolled down. As they approached, he stuck his head out and scowled at them. They're not paying me by the hour. Get a move on. He was certainly a pleasant fellow. Isaac's car was small, more a coupe than a sedan. Whoever got in the back seat was going to be crammed in tightly, but there was no help for it, so Joe pushed forward the passenger seat to climb in. I'll take the back, Joe. She looked at Malcolm incredulously. With your long legs? She shook her head. I'll be fine. Then she climbed in. Malcolm took a minute to settle up with the motel office. Then they were off. Very quickly, Joe began to regret not taking Malcolm up on his offer. It was not the tight confines of the rear seats that got to her. Raul was skinny, so even though they were forced to sit close by each other in the car, they did not have to get that close. No, the problem was Isaac. Or rather, the fact that he never even considered activating the automatic navigation system, and he drove like a madman on a racetrack. He took corners much faster than he should have, pressing her and Raul into each other, and he tended to brake suddenly. Throughout, he spewed curses at the other drivers that would put the saltiest of Starliner pilots to shame. Before long, Joe began to feel bruised from the constant rocking around and getting shoved into the side of the car or into Raoul's bony shoulder. And poor Raoul, he must have jarred his injured arm a dozen times or more by the time they finally stopped in front of a nondescript commercial building on the west side of town. The building was three stories tall and square, with stucco siding and a flat roof. Thin windows that reminded Joe of arrow slits in a medieval castle marked the building's levels, and a single pair of swinging doors set into the center of the first floor offered entrance. A sign over the door read, The Ortega Building. There was a small sign to the right, which presumably listed the various organizations housed there. Taken as a whole, the building could have been removed and set down in any commercial block of just about any city without causing any comments on it at all, except about the mechanism required to move it. Joe could see why the organization, or the underground, or whatever they call themselves, would choose this place to reorganize itself. Well, here we are. Isaac took the car out of gear and looked over his shoulder at Joe. Hope you know what you're doing, girl. Irritation, born from the ride and amplified by his tone, flared up. I can manage just fine, Isaac, Joe replied, not trying to keep the acid from her tone, but thank you for your concern. He silently met her gaze for a few seconds, and Joe could almost see his wheels turning. Then he surprised her. He shook his head and chuckled. His smile made his disfigured face seem suddenly brighter, and the glimmer of youth shone from his eyes for a moment. Watch out for this one, Malcolm, he said, nudging Malcolm with his elbow. She might give Pedro a migraine. Malcolm just shook his head and got out of the car. Joe and Raul followed as quickly as they could, with all the twisting and contorting that maneuver required. No sooner were they out than Isaac drove away. Joe felt certain he was still laughing to himself. Chapter 27 Negotiation Pedro could hardly be considered a man, at least to Joe's way of thinking. He was maybe 25, with the kind of baby face that made her doubt he had to shave more than twice a week. He had the tanned features and dark hair one would expect from Central or South America, with high cheekbones and a round face and dull brown eyes. His jeans, complete with a multi-tool and a leather pouch, work boots, and simple collared shirt, gave him the look of a working man, but when Joe shook hands with him, his palms were smooth like a person who spends little time at manual labor. For whatever reason, Malcolm deferred to him, as much as he deferred to anyone anyway. 
The famous Captain Ishikawa, Pedro said as he released her hand. I'd say it's nice to meet you, but he glanced at Malcolm and frowned slightly. Frankly, we could have all done without the honor, I think. Joe scowled, but Malcolm spoke before she could fire back. That's not fair, Pedro. The NSA was watching her, yes, but we knew that. They followed me back to the house from her place. Not her. Pedro's frown deepened a little. Then he sighed and nodded. Of course. He looked back at Joe, managing, if not a smile, at least less of a frown. My apologies for my rudeness. Will you sit? He gestured toward the center of the room, where a leather-upholstered couch and a pair of stuffed chairs clustered around a coffee table that was inlaid with a standard-sized display and control pad. Joe nodded and selected one of the stuffed chairs. As she sunk into its comforting embrace, she surveyed the room more closely. It was located on the second floor of the Ortega building, then down a long corridor from the lift and around a corner to the right. As she had followed Malcolm down the corridor, Joe was struck by the generic decoration of the place, as well as by its emptiness. Doors to a number of offices lined the corridor, with placards announcing chiropractors, lawyers, accountants, an artist studio, and a catering service, though Joe presumed they did their actual cooking elsewhere. But no one else entered the building at all. It was the middle of the day, as surely someone else besides them had work to do. But Joe never saw anyone. Pedro's office, who knew if it was his, or shell companies, or what, but Joe thought of it as his anyway, bore the label McKinsey and Velasquez, Architects, on its placard. The door opened as they arrived, and they were greeted by a man and a woman dressed in workout clothes, as though they were going to the gym, except that they wore pistols and shoulder holsters, and the woman carried a handheld weapon scanner. Malcolm, they let enter without comment. But they subjected Joe and Raoul to the weapon scanner and a pat-down even after Joe surrendered her plasma pistol. All that to get here, to meet with this kid. He knew how to decorate, Joe had to admit. The central area of the offices where they sat had hardwood floors that were covered by several rugs that hailed from Persia, unless Joe missed her guess. A few paintings of nature scenes and wildlife hung on the walls, their colors matching those of the rugs and the upholstery of the furniture perfectly. First things first, Pedro began. Yeah, Raoul said, where's my money? Pedro blinked. I was going to suggest we have a doctor look at your arm, actually. Oh, Raoul flushed slightly, embarrassed. Pedro tapped the control pad. A moment later, a man walked into the room from farther back in the offices. He was tall, just over two meters, and carried himself with a professional air that was enhanced by his sport coat and tie. Is the patient here, he said, then seeing Raoul and his arm, he smirked slightly. Of course. I'm Dr. Connors. Will you follow me, please? Raoul nodded and stood again. He paused to look back at Pedro before following the doctor out. Don't forget my money. Don't worry, Mr. Ramirez, you will be fully paid for your trouble. With another nod, Raoul left the room. A few seconds later, the sound of a door shutting from the back of the offices confirmed his departure, and Pedro turned a baleful eye on Malcolm. What the hell, Malcolm, he said, his voice less civil now that Raoul was out of earshot. I can understand you bringing her into this, but him? We can't trust him to keep his mouth shut. There wasn't much choice at the time, and then afterwards, Malcolm spread his hands. What'd you want me to do? Ditch him? Injured? Where the NSA would pick him up? They would never believe he wasn't in with us from the start, and you know what that would mean for him. Pedro frowned again, then looked down at the coffee table and nodded. You're right, of course. Well, he perked back up with a quick inhalation and directed his gaze at Joe. We're in quite a pickle here, Captain, because of your new friends up there. He gestured toward the ceiling, vaguely. And your other friends in Geneva. I would not call them my friends, Pedro smiled faintly. No, of course you wouldn't. Regardless, since the raid, more than half of the people in our organization have vanished. Either they left town, or they decided they've had enough, and will never hear from them again, or they're dead or caught. 
Between that and losing our base and equipment, it's been a difficult couple of weeks around here. Joe frowned, troubled. I had the impression your organization was larger than just this cell in Quito. Oh, it is, Pedro replied. Problem is, I don't know how to get in touch with the others. Come again? Pedro looked down at the coffee table, abashed. Malcolm spoke in the intervening silence. There's not much communication between the branches, for obvious reasons. The branch leaders know who the other branch leaders are, but aside from that... What was this, amateur hour? You've got to be kidding me, Joe said, exasperation making her tone sharp, biting. You never put together a contingency plan in case you lost one of those leaders? Of course we did, Pedro replied, flushing with what Joe hoped was embarrassment, though it could just as easily have been anger. We did not, however, plan to lose both the branch leader and her second. Now, with Becky taken and Lars dead, he left the rest unsaid. Joe blinked. She had not realized that Lars was the second. He looked just like a guard. So you're telling me we're screwed. Not in so many words. There are emergency contingencies, Malcolm interjected, but they take time to work. We put a message out to the other groups as soon as that raid happened, but it will take another week or so before we hear back from them. They have to revamp their security, move to their alternate safe houses. Oh, okay, Joe said. So we get some new terminals up, redo the presentation, and line up the press. By the time that's ready to go, the others should be up and ready for it in case we need support. The two men looked at her silently. She began to get a sinking feeling in her stomach, like there had not been enough hits already. What? Pedro cleared his throat and looked at Malcolm, almost bleedingly, Joe thought. The NSA took all of our data storage units in the raid, Joe, Malcolm said softly. And you don't have a backup. We too... The problem is, its location is a tightly held secret, and only Becky and Lars know where it is, Joe finished. Shit. The two men nodded. Unbelievable. This really was amateur hour. Well, gentlemen, I wish you'd have been more open about your little organization's planning abilities earlier, before I decided to pick the side that's doomed to failure. Joe leaned back in the chair and pressed her fingers to the sides of her temples. She was beginning to get a headache. What do you propose we do now? There was a long silence. Too long. One of those two had better say something that approximated a plan soon, or Joe was going to lose it. I think at this point we need to consider the Pericles issue a lost cause, and Joe rose from her seat in a towering fury. Don't even think about going there, Pedro. She dabbed her index finger in his face, and he recoiled, his eyes widening in surprise, and, she hoped, a little bit of fear. I didn't throw away my career, my livelihood, and risk getting killed or thrown in prison over this just so you candy asses can throw in the towel at the first sign of trouble. Malcolm cleared his throat. Joe, she shot him her best. I'm the captain. I'm pissed, and you better shut up and do what I say. Look. His mouth shut with a satisfying click of teeth, and he sunk back in his seat a little. Joe looked back at Pedro. His wide-eyed stare had given way to an expression of chagrin. He refused to meet her eyes. Well? Pedro swallowed, then shook his head. It's not a matter of not wanting to do anything, but without... Without Becky, you're impotent. Pedro grimaced. For a second, Joe thought he was going to contest her statement. But then he just nodded. Well, Joe crossed her arms over her chest. The plan was beginning to form in her mind. It was ludicrous. Insane, even. But these were desperate times, and maybe they called for a little insanity. In that case, we'll just have to get Becky back. The look of stunned incredulity on Pedro's face was priceless. Okay, I didn't finish the readings nearly as quickly as I thought I would. I started Saturday, here it is Tuesday, and we're just getting the podcast out. Um, oops. What can I say? I got distracted by The Expanse all weekend. Great show, if you haven't seen it yet. Anyway, um, yeah, so look at that. (laughs) 
Joe's uh, out of the firing pan, but looks like uh, not exactly out of the fire either because these guys aren't nearly as organized and as awesome as she was hoping. Uh, but hey, looks like we're going to do a jailbreak. <laughs> that should be fun. Uh, stay tuned next week for the next couple chapters, or actually later this week since this is technically last week's episode right now, uh, for the next couple chapters, and we'll see what happens with that. Meanwhile, um, now that it is actually the next week, hey, I did finish my uh, week 16 story, week 15, 16, 16, I think. Anyway, I got my short story written for the week, so streak is continuing, yay, for the win. Um, what else is going on? I got a new story actually releasing here. Uh, shorter story, a novelette, so more than a short story, less than a novel. Uh, it's called Malinvestment. It's actually live now, but I'm going to make the official announcement about it uh, tomorrow, the 31st. Ask her. It's out there now. You can go get it. I'll put the cover up here so you can see it. Uh, it's about a cool guy who he is, he is the god of Malinvestment. And he's been trying to figure. He's been going through life as his member of the Pantheon, and can't figure out how to use his powers for good because he's the god of malinvestment and thus, you know, economic depression. How the hell do you use powers for good for that? Um, man, then we go from there. An amusing story, I think you'll like it. Go check it out. You can buy it from my website. Best place to get it. Buy it from uh, Amazon or those other places. Not as good, but you can still get it from there. And, of course, you go by the Berkeley's Conspiracy, too, since that's the one you're listening to. And, uh, yeah, you can't you can't wait until a few days to find out what happens in the next couple chapters, can you? No, you can't. So go buy the book. But if you don't want to, just tell all your buddies about it and have them tune into the podcast and the video series here, and uh, that'll be even better. Well, not even better. It'll be almost as good. Uh, hey, go by my website, become a member. Uh, a couple bucks a month will help out maintaining the podcast, keeps pay for the time, and um, helps sustain this writing career, which is even cooler. Um, and, you know, like, subscribe to the videos, subscribe to the podcast, leave comments everywhere. And, uh, yeah, that's about it. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. I'll talk to you next time. Until then, don't do anything I wouldn't do. Thanks for listening to Storytime with Michael Kingswood. You can find me online at michaelkingswood.com. I'm also on Facebook and Twitter. My web store is ssnstorytelling.com where you can find all my books in your favorite formats. Purchasing through the web store nets me the most profit, but if you prefer, I'm also on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kobo, and all the other usual e-tailers. If you want to learn about new releases, sign up for my mailing list through the contact form at my website. I guarantee not to spam you, only send an email when I have some news to share. Storytime with Michael Kingswood is copyright of Michael Kingswood. Intro and outro music copyright Gene Paul Zogby, licensed through stockmusic.net. All rights reserved.